Hello, this is Jeff Orge, the president of Gateway Seminary and the speaker on the Lead On podcast. So thank you for joining me today. On this podcast, we talk about leadership issues in Christian ministry, what we can learn, how we can apply insights, and how we can be more effective leaders. A few weeks ago, I was challenged uh, to speak on a subject which uh, I'd never addressed before. A person said, uh, would you come and speak at our event on the subject of how leaders should grow and change after seminary? Now, that was a challenging thought for me because, quite frankly, most of my time is spent focused on how to train leaders at a seminary and what people are supposed to learn while they're attending school. But his challenge was really more specific. What should leaders learn after seminary? How should they continue to grow and develop? So I gave some thought to that, and I'd like to share some of that with you today. First, let me make three observations about seminary training and why it has a unique and important role in our lives as leaders. And then after those brief observations, I'll move into the really focusing on the question that was raised. First of all, a seminary is foundational training. It lays the groundwork for a life of leadership, particularly students who take the Master of Divinity degree Uh, take a broad range of training that includes everything from Hebrew and Greek language to practical skills like counseling and preaching. So seminary is foundational. It's designed to give a person a broad-based understanding of what they need to know to move into a life of ministry leadership. Second, seminary training, however, is limited. Now, that might surprise you. As a seminary president, you might expect me to say, Seminary training is comprehensive, and it will teach you everything you ever need to know, but that's really simply not true. Uh, Seminary training is limited. It's limited in its scope and focus to training people in foundational skills for ministry. Every seminary graduate should continue to study, grow, learn, and develop uh, throughout their lifetime. Seminary should lay a good foundation for that to happen, but it is by no means Uh, the sum total of everything a person needs to learn to be effective in leadership. And then I would also say that seminary is really a good beginning. It's a place to uh, establish a foundation, as I've said. It's a place to uh, focus on limited but significant information to get you started in in a good way in ministry. Uh, It's also uh, a good beginning in that it teaches you how to learn, uh, how to study, how to process material, how to communicate what you've learned with others. And so seminary is uh, a really good launch point uh, for a life of leadership. So I obviously, as a seminary president, I believe in seminary training. But I also think that we need to understand that it has a specific purpose in our lives. It's foundational, limited, and a really good beginning or a good good beginning point for a lifetime of learning and leadership development. But that leads us then to the really meat of the matter. The question I was asked to address in the recent uh, location, and the question was, uh, how do leaders change after seminary? And I really was able to come up with about seven ways that I think leaders should change and really are changing if they're, uh, if they're continuing to grow after they graduate. So here they are. First, maturing leaders learn from experience, both their successes and their failures. Maturing leaders uh, who've been at it for 10, 15, 20, 35 years in my case, uh, we learn from trial and error, from mistakes we've made, from successes we've had, what really works and what really doesn't. 
we, we develop almost an intuitive sense of that, and because of that, we can appear to be making snap judgments or, or rash decisions, but really we're not. Uh, Bill Hybels, in his book on leadership, describes the process, uh, this process in his life. He says uh, that oftentimes staff will come into his office and uh, lay out an idea or start presenting a possibility, and he'll cut them off after just a few moments and say, we're not doing that, or, you know, that, that really sounds fantastic. Why don't you run with it and get back with me and see how it develops? Um, after he had done that several times, uh, someone said, well, you're not even hearing out the full idea. And he said, I don't need to hear the full idea. They said, well, you're making snap judgments. He said, no, I'm not. I'm making judgments based on 35 years of leadership experience. It's not a snap judgment at all. It's a long, slow process of judgment that just culminates in my deciding about what you're putting before me. I would say the same thing's true for me and for a lot of other people who've been leading for a long time. Uh, we've made a lot of mistakes. We've had a few successes. Uh, over the years, we've learned from our experiences. Uh, we have uh, been through some things that particularly younger leaders may not have yet experienced. And so when someone comes in my office and starts laying out something as an idea or a possibility or a project, uh, sometimes it doesn't take me very long to make my decision to either say no or yes about what they're telling me because I'm reflecting on a similar experience I may have had 25 years ago or two or three experiences I've helped other organizations resolve over the past decade. And the person sitting in front of me uh, may not have any frame of reference uh, like that, but that's okay. That's why he's come or she's come to me. Uh, I, I do have that frame of reference. And so maturing leaders um, really are better leaders than they were during their seminary training years because they have a lot of experience to draw from, which gives them the capacity to make uh, judgments, which may seem like snap judgments or quick judgments, but they're really not. Uh, they're just judgments culminating in the moment of what may have been a decade or two or three of, of leadership experiences from which they're drawing in the moment. Now, another uh, uh, way that maturing leaders mature after seminary is that they narrow their focus on what they do and what they devote their time to. This has been a transition for me over the years in terms of deciding where I speak or the kinds of things I give attention to. Uh, when I was younger in ministry, I, I tried to do a lot of different things, and I think that was an important part of my development and process of discovering uh, how God made me and how he gifted me and how he wants to use me. So, for example, when I was uh, earlier in ministry, I spoke at things like revivals and uh, marriage conferences and uh, other events like that, camps, for example, youth camps, children's camps. I did all kinds of speaking because I was really uh, open to doing all kinds of ministries. I was also in different seasons of life, but also I was trying to find what I was best at and where God could most effectively use me. Now, over the years, I've determined that really there are two or three places where I can speak <clears throat> that I make the most uh, effective impact. First of all, I, I take speaking engagements now that have to do with leaders or leadership. I take speaking engagements that are on college campuses in almost any venue there. And I take speaking engagements for what I call uh, uh, influencers, or uh, people who make an impact in the lives of others. And so sometimes those engagements are actually for very small groups of people who may have uh, large impact in the ministries they do. I, I sometimes call these people force multipliers. And so if I can influence 12 who may influence 12,000, I'll spend a significant amount of time with the 12. So I focus my speaking ministry these days on uh, leaders 
and college students and force multipliers are influencers. Now that doesn't mean that I think other events aren't important. I think marriage conferences are very important. I think church-based revivals can be very significant. I think camps, both children's camps, youth camps, and other kinds of camps are vital. Uh, I believe in all these things, and I also believe other people can do them better than me. And so I don't try to do every kind of event. I simply turn down those which are no longer, which I no longer feel are a part of my more narrowed focus on what I really do well and what God has uniquely gifted me to do. Now, this comes from maturity. And as I've matured over the years, um, I've become more narrow in my focus and more effective in what I do because, frankly, I'm only really doing those things which I know that I do relatively well. And I, I think this is a, a, a point of maturity for leaders after you've been at it for a while, that you can really narrow your focus and because of that, do more what you do best and also have a freedom to release other things to other people, recognizing that, uh, that you're not good at everything and that other people are good at some things that you're really either not very good at or at best average at doing. And it's to the church's advantage and certainly to the kingdom's advantage for you to focus on what you do well and let other people focus on what they do well. All right, a third way that maturing leaders change after seminary is they become uh, more flexible about more things, but also more rigid about, a fewer, about fewer things. Now, what I mean by this is that as I've uh, gotten older and matured as a leader, I find myself being less and less rigid about some things. Uh, there, was, there was a time in my life, for example, that I was really rigid about Bible translations. I was rigid about how people should dress in worship services or for ministry uh, leadership. Uh, I was uh, much more rigid about church participation and what should happen on Sundays and different kinds of aspects of uh, church planning and how they impacted uh, family life. And I was just rigid about a lot of different things. Uh, I was probably too rigid about things in my own family with my children. And I look back on that now, and I think that while our family survived and did, did all right in the context of those decisions, I still look back and wonder about some of the rigidity of my life, even in those capacities. So as I've matured, I've become less rigid about uh, more things. However, at the same time, I've become more rigid or more convicted about fewer things. I'm more convicted than ever before about the importance of the Word of God, about its inspiration, its infallibility, its inerrancy, and its capacity to speak truth into our lives. I'm more convicted than ever before about the uh, onlyness of salvation available in Jesus Christ and the fact that we have to get his message to the whole world. Uh, I'm more convicted than ever before that uh, Christian worldview and Christian application ethically of the gospel is the best way for culture to be shaped and for community to be organized. And I find myself uh, being less, uh, less willing to dialogue about certain aspects of that. It, it really is important what we decide about life and about marriage and about uh, morality related to things like health care and other issues and end-of-life care and issues like that. And so I find myself being more flexible about a lot of things but less flexible about a few things. And I think this is part of maturing as a leader and changing as you go through your life of leadership, and that is you come to understand that some things really do matter, and they're, they're worth staking your life out for and if, in fact, dying for. That's a significant choice that you make to be more rigid about fewer things, but really a lot more rigid about those things that you select.
Okay, another way that I've matured and that I think that leaders mature after seminary is that leader, maturing leaders learn to match their leadership style with situational demands. Now, there was a time 20 years ago when I spent uh, a lot of energy trying to figure out my leadership style. Uh, there were a number of books written about this in the 1990s, and uh, they were put, people were put into categories, and uh, leadership styles were described, and there was great debate over whether you had a prominent style or a prominent and a secondary style or whether you had a blend of styles. There were all kinds of de debates and discussions about this. But as I matured, I've learned to answer that question in an, enti in an entirely different way. Now, when someone asks me, now, what's your leadership style? I will say, well, what's the situation demand? See, leadership style is situational, meaning that you choose your leadership style based on the situation in which you find yourself. For example, um, I work with a fairly high-powered uh, group of vice presidents. They're smart, they're energetic, they're passionate, they're committed, uh, they are uh, creative. So when I work with those men in a, in a leadership style or in a leadership setting, I choose a collaborative leadership style almost always. I don't, uh, I, I facilitate a lot of discussion, a lot of conversation. Um, I want to hear a lot of different ideas. I want to come to a consensus decision. Um, I'm very reluctant in that group to uh, to assert my will. I, I found over the years that when I've done that, I've almost always been wrong. <clears throat> These men are good men. They care about me. They care about the seminary. They care about the mission that we're trying to accomplish. And so when they have objection to something I'm proposing or concerns about an issue I'm raising, uh, it's a red flag for me. And I've learned to trust and value highly their, their uh, insights. And so when I'm in that leadership situation, I choose the leader st leadership style of collaboration. Now, this, uh, as you may know, the seminary went through a major relocation recently. And as part of that relocation, we had a period of time when we actually had to physically move the seminary. Uh, now, I spent a significant amount of time over almost two years getting ready for that move. Uh, and part of the getting ready process was very collaborative as we involved a lot of people in the dialogue and the conversation and in the process of making those plans. But when it came down to executing the move strategy, uh, there was no collaboration involved. It was top-down, a fairly authoritative uh, leadership during those six weeks. What I mean by that is um, I met with the entire team every, mo every morning, and I said, today's assignments are these. And I would post a list of what needed to be done that day, and I would say, and here are the people on these teams, and I would assign people to teams. And then I would say, get, work, get to work on these projects. We'll rendezvous back here at noon. We'll have lunch together, and then uh, over lunch, we'll see what progress we're making. We'll redeploy the teams, and we'll move into the afternoon work. And I did that day after day for several weeks until we loaded and completed the relocation from the Mill Valley campus down to the Ontario location. And then we arrived here. Uh, we spent about a week and a half with the same kind of work plan here, assembling every day, deploying into teams, uh, checking in every day at noontime, redeploying the teams for the afternoon session, and then every evening writing a new work plan for the following day. Now, this was uh, not uh, collaborative at all in that sense. Uh, it was very authoritative, meaning that I told people what to do, when to do it, where to do it, and what team to do it on. And because there was an incredible amount of complexity to the task, uh, there wasn't a lot of time for discussion and dialogue. Now, as the day wore on and people said, hey, can we do it this way or can we do it that way? Sure, you adjust as you go. 
But what I'm trying to show you is that uh, 20 years ago, I, I had a, or, or I was worried about my leadership style. Now I'm not worried about that. I, I focus instead on diagnosing the leadership situation and choosing my leader style to fit the situation. And I think this is one of the ways that leaders mature uh, over time after seminary, and that is we learn that that situational demands determine leadership style. And whether you're choosing to be in a more collaborative form or more an authoritative form, whether you're choosing to work collegially with a group or whether you're choosing to be uh, more autocratic in making how, in deciding how you're doing things, and, whether you're, and where, wherever you are on the spectrum of those extremes, um, that's something that has to be decided in the moment based on who you're working with, the problem you're trying to resolve, the time frame at hand, the urgency of the situation, if it has any moral or ethical overtones that simply require an absolute decision without any more conversation. All that has to be brought into consideration, and I think that leaders maturing over time get better, at, at, get better and better at making those kind of leadership style uh, decisions. All right, another way that leaders mature over time is that maturing leaders used to learn to focus on uh, major problems over minor issues. Or I might say it this way, they learn to focus on uh, major solutions over minor problems. Uh, let me give an example of that. When I, that I've learned just since I've been at the seminary and, and really been through the maturing process of leading here as a president. Uh, one of the, what I've learned here is that when I first came, I spent a lot of time thinking about the curriculum. Uh, what's taught, how it's taught, uh, even boring down so far as to think about specific assignments and how those could be structured or created. But I learned early on here that that really wasn't the best use of my time as president in terms of trying to impact what's taught and how it's taught. Instead, my better focus was on choosing and developing the faculty. I knew that as president, I could have significant influence. In fact, I have ultimate decision-making authority over who comes on the faculty. Uh, that's really not true. The board actually has ultimate decision-making authority, but it's my job to recommend someone to the board, and quite frankly, the board is looking to me for that, uh, that recommendation pretty strongly. So uh, I do have a, a very significant role, which, which uh, is, is, is almost <laughs> absolute in making those final decisions. And what I learned over the years is that if I'll do a better job of selecting faculty and then training or shaping those faculty, then the curriculum, the assignments, and the outcomes in the classrooms, those things sort of take care of themselves. So as you mature as a leader, you learn how to focus on uh, major problems instead of minor issues, or you learn how to focus, I would say it, on major solutions rather than minor problems. You learn what really needs to be done in order to make something really significant happen. Uh, in our strategic planning process here, for example, uh, we, we worked toward developing uh, five to seven strategic goals that we could work on over a five-year period. Now, you're choosing a goal that you're going to work on for five years. It needs to be a significant and overarching goal. But it also needs to be a goal that will make a significant difference in a cascading effect throughout the organization. So one of the uh, images I used with the team that was creating those goals was, I said, we need to find the big levers that we can pull. We need to find those things that if we'll accomplish the big aspects of the goal, a lot of smaller aspects will take care of themselves. And we were able to do that. Uh, just for one example, we, we made a goal a number of years ago of significantly improving faculty compensation. And we did that over a three-year period of time. Now, why was that goal the particular goal that we selected? Well, because we were, we were facing issues like faculty morale, 
like hiring people at mid-career level, like being able to attract the kind of scholars we wanted to build our future programs. Uh, we were uh, dealing with retention issues and keeping our own faculty in place. We had a lot of different issues that were on the table, and they all seemed to flow back to the one issue of compensation. So rather than write a bunch of different goals about improving faculty morale, improving faculty retention, attracting uh, more significant mid-career scholars to our team, or anything like that, we realized that if we fixed the one thing, which is the compensation structure, that it would fix a lot of other things over time. So we focused on the major solution, or the, the solving the major issue, which was the compensation structure. And once we got that resolved, then a lot of these other things fell into line after them. There was this cascading effect down through the organization. I've learned to do that over time. Uh, I, I think back on a long-range planning process I led in my first pastorate. It was, to put it in a word, a disaster. Uh, in fact, it's hard to describe how badly it turned out. Uh, it was a painful experience for me and also for the church. One of the reasons it was so badly done is that I spent far too much time focusing on the minutia of trying to lay out even things down to the calendaring of certain aspects of when different parts of the strategy had to be implemented. Well, the plan got so long, I mean, multiple pages, single-spaced of dates and times and action items and sub-action items and, and, and even down to curriculum choices and leadership titles and things like that. It was just far too detailed. And I've learned now that rather than trying to make these massively detailed plans focusing on all these minor problems, it's better to try to find the three or four or five or seven big problems that have main solutions. And if you can hit those, then a lot of other things take care of themselves. And I've learned that, I've matured in that over years in leadership. Okay, well, let's move along here. Number six, I think that maturing leaders, after you've been at it for a while, uh, are less susceptible to criticism and discouragement. Now, let me, let me be careful here. I said less susceptible, susceptible uh, not without criticism or discouragement. I still get criticized. It still hurts me. I still feel discouraged when things aren't going as well as I hoped. But I'm less susceptible to those things than I once was. Now I've learned to take critics more in stride, and I've learned to manage my discouragement, recognizing that uh, most discouragement is caused not by failure, but by simply failure to meet expectation. And that's a very different thing. And so I've learned over the years how to manage my critics better, how to be less impacted by criticism, and also how to deal with discouragement much more effectively. And that comes from both experience and from time with God and watching how he's been at work in my life. Which leads me to the last of these qualities of how leaders change after seminary, and that is maturing leaders increase their capacity to trust God. When I first started out in ministry, uh, in my first church staff position, I remember needing $500 for a project. This was in the early 1970s. And I prayed, oh, God, how will I get $500? And I thought $500 was more money than existed in the universe. I, I couldn't even imagine God giving me that much money to move my ministry forward. Well, now, uh, last year in our seminary, we took in, uh, in special gifts, not, in, not counting all the routine money that comes in, we took in in special gifts almost $2 million. Um, and a couple of those gifts were $500,000 checks that people wrote to the seminary. Uh, that's the kind of praying and trusting that I have to have now to enable the ministry of the seminary to advance, that God will give us those kinds of significant <clears throat> and amazing resources. And so 
I'm, I'm more able to trust God now because after maturing over these years, I've learned that he is trustworthy, that his resources are greater than I've ever imagined, and that he can do even more than I can ask or think. So over the years, my capacity to trust God has improved significantly and enlarged significantly uh, from the times when I was back in school. So let me summarize these. I've named seven. Seven leadership changes that I think we should experience, and I think most healthy leaders do experience after seminary as they move into 10, 20, 30, 40 years of ministry leadership. Maturing leaders learn from experience. We narrow our focus. We're more flexible about things, but more rigid about a few things. We learn to match our leadership style with situational demands to focus on major issues instead of minor issues. Maturing leaders are less susceptible to criticism and to discouragement, not without some susceptibility, but less susceptible. And maturing leaders increase their capacity to trust God. Now let me conclude with three concerns I have as I watch some leaders mature in unhealthy ways. First, some leaders become more negative as they age. Uh, They complain more about change, about how things are not as good as they used to be, or about how they've been slighted or how their work has been undone. Uh, A friend of mine used to joke that our goal in life was to live long enough to buy houses next door to each other and sit on our front porches every day and gripe about how the young guys were messing up our work. Well, we used to joke about that. But as I'm getting older, I find myself having to guard against that temptation. The temptation to become negative about how things are, how things uh, have turned out, or how things have not been as good as we'd hoped, or about how people are changing things that we held dear. It's so important to reflect back on how we changed things in our younger generation when we were the younger generation and to give the current generation the same blessing and privilege to do, the, to do that very thing. So, be, so if you are a maturing leader, guard against becoming more negative as you age. Second. Some maturing leaders become more arrogant as they age. Uh, They've been successful, and they like to tell other people about it. Uh, They've been successful, so they become presumptive in establishing the way they did it as the optimal way that everyone should do it. And sometimes they become arrogant in making self-serving decisions, making decisions near the end of their careers that serve their careers more than the mission of their organization. So if you're a maturing leader, be on guard lest you do that. And then some maturing leaders become more selfish as they age, meaning that they uh, focus more and more of structuring their leadership organizational need, or organizational structures to meet their needs rather than to fulfill the mission. Uh, one thing I observe is that some leaders, and even some Christian leaders, are very reluctant to retire. They use a spiritual language like, well, God never called anyone to retire, and there's no retirement in the Bible, and um, I'm not going to uh, rust out, I'm going to burn out. And I've heard all those things, but sadly, uh, what I observe, and I could give a series of illustrations of this, but what I've observed is that some leaders just stay too long. They hold on thinking that they're still effective when they're not effective. They hold on to their position long after they've lost the, the drive, the passion, Uh, and the energy to sustain vision into the future. So um, if you're one of those leaders, let me encourage you that uh, it's always better to leave when people still want you to stay 
than to leave when people are wishing that you'd already gone. And so these are some concerns I have about maturing leaders. Uh, don't, don't, if you're one of those, if you're like me, you're getting into that part of life as a leader, uh, be on guard. Don't become negative. Don't become arrogant. Don't become selfish. Well, it was an interesting study for me to think through how are leaders supposed to change and how should leaders change and what are some healthy ways that leaders change after seminary. Seminary certainly is foundational. It has a limited but important focus, and it does establish a good beginning for our lives, but it shouldn't be the end of our learning. Uh, we should, as leaders, demonstrate a lifetime of learning, of maturing, of growing, and becoming more effective over the years. I pray that's your experience as a young leader as you grow into those years. And if you're a more mature leader like me, I pray you can look back and see some of the wisdom and some of the insights I've shared today and then take those concerns I've shared to heart and make sure they don't become part of your legacy as you wrap up your leadership years. Thanks for listening today and uh, glad to have you on the podcast.